So when we talk about sleep, I, I like to say that sleep is the single most powerful performance enhancing and health providing behavior known to humankind. Welcome to Forever Young, the health and well-being podcast from Lanzarov. My name is Mario Pedazzoli, and in every episode, join me in conversation with a variety of health experts and special guests as we explore what it means to live well. We may not find the secret to eternal youth, but join me on our quest as we explore just what it means to live a balanced, healthy and happy life. Hello again and welcome. In today's show, we will be considering one of the pillars of our overall health and well-being, the often overlooked topic of sleep. Sleep is a life necessity that affects all of us. Maintaining a regular sleep schedule and allowing our body and mind to recover each day is, of course, essential, not only for our well-being, but also for our longevity. That said, one in three of UK adults suffer from poor sleep with work, life stress and digital devices more often than not the root cause of the problem. Well, to help us delve deeper, I'm delighted to welcome sleep physiologist, Dr. Guy Meadows. Sleep has been Guy's life work for the last 20 years, 16 of which have been dedicated purely to helping clients overcome insomnia. With a doctorate from Imperial College London, Guy is also published author and co-founder of Sleep School. Guy, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. First important question. Did you sleep well last night? <laughs> I did, actually. Yeah, I did have a good night's sleep, which um, is, always, uh, is always a tricky one on a, on a Sunday night. But no, last night was particularly good. Woke <laughs> up feeling very refreshed. Thank you. Well, I'm sure over the course of the next 30 minutes or so, you'll uh, share your secrets. Um, first of all, let's, let's find out a little bit more about you and your career. What led you to specialise and, and take this career path as a sleep physiologist guy? Well, when I uh, was doing my sort of undergraduate and uh, master's programs in physiology, actually, what I was really interested in was um, a lack of oxygen on the brain. So uh, what we call brain hypoxia and, and how that sort of impacted uh, individuals. And when to, to cut a long story short, what I discovered through one of my professors at the time is that people stop breathing at night. So people who suffer from chronic insomnia, uh, sorry, people who suffer from sleep apnea. And I that led me on to do a, a PhD at Imperial College where I was looking at the regulation of brain blood flow during wakefulness and during the night, during sleep, um, sort of and inducing sort of uh, states of hypoxia at the same time. So basically looking at what happens to the brain um, during when we're sleeping, if you reduce the amount of oxygen and would that sort of increase the, uh, an individual's um, risk of stroke, for example. Uh -huh. Okay. And you're also trained in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. What type of therapy is this? Maybe just sort of uh, educate us, please, on that. Exactly. So despite my sort of PhD focusing on sleep apnea, 
um, as I said, where people are stopping breathing at night. I actually, I, I, I developed a sort of a real interest in chronic insomnia. And insomnia is what we call psychophysiological. It has both physiological components, but then the psychological components as well. And, and that was a real area which was sort of lacking in my sort of knowledge pool at the time. And so I did additional sort of learning into mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, which mindfulness is now huge. You know, back then, um, it, you know, it, it, the... Uh, it was uh, there was only a few sort of places which you could actually you know sort of learn what it was and how to practice it and in, in a nutshell mindfulness is about noticing what's going on both internally and externally uh, in the moment um, non-judgmentally and but then I also became very interested in something called acceptance and commitment therapy, which is a, um, a third wave behavioral therapy. It's, it's a newer form of cognitive behavior therapy, which most people have heard of CBT. And uh, CBT was the most sort of effective method of treatment for chronic insomnia. And I found that whilst it was proven to be effective it wasn't as helpful as i wanted it to be and that's where i developed you know sort of started to pull in some of these more sort of acceptance based principles into the treatment process that i was using very good well we'll cover all of that and more um very very shortly particularly with regards to insomnia but sleep generally do you feel we take it for granted um it seems sometimes we do. And, and why is sleep actually so important? So that's a, a, a great question. The first, you know, what are we taking it for granted? And 100% for many of us, it it is, you know, with the rise of the sort of the fast paced digital world that we live in, it's very easy to find ourselves perhaps, you know, sort of choosing to forego our sleep opportunity time to sort of spend time on Netflix, you know, sort of watch that just an, another episode or to be scrolling through social media or perhaps to be checking our emails, etc. And and what that's seen is that a, a dramatic reduction in the amount of time that people sleep. So we did a, a survey of UK working adults, um, which involved 25,000 working adults, and 77% of those weren't reaching their biological sleep need every night. And on average, we found that people were getting about an hour and a half less sleep than they actually needed. So we can see that it's, it's you know, it's not getting enough sleep, and that's you know, beside any sort of clinical issue as to why that may, might be, is, 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 is the norm. And the, it's, the next... uh, it's getting worse, not better, would you say? Certainly, I, I think this is, a, again, very much about where we are um, right now. We, we, you know, before COVID, we knew that the world was going through a sleepless epidemic and, um, and, and you know, and people really needed to you know start taking sleep seriously but then with covid coming along as well we certainly know that's put added pressure it's increased so many of the factors which disturb our sleep so it's increased sort of our stress levels which leads to sleeplessness it's increased our poor mental health but there's also research showing that we've been eating you know perhaps a little bit more unhealthily um perhaps you know sort of you know maybe drinking a little bit more maybe as a sort of a, a coping strategy for you know sort of the, the anxiety that we experience so there are so many covid has brought along so many different additional factors which has led to uh people experiencing poor sleep and research from 
from the sleep school, but also from places like King's College London, showed that around 50% of the people during COVID um, have been experiencing worse off sleep. And uh, I know one of the things you like to talk about is routine and, and, and maybe sleep hygiene and, and, and doing things in a certain way to prepare the body for, for good sleep. And, and I guess COVID disrupted all of that and all routine went out of the window, good or bad, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, we can you can literally track it to the to the day when um, suddenly the Internet was trending with hashtag can't sleep. And unfortunately, it was this this um, sort of extreme set of coincidences whereby suddenly we were you know covid came along and we had all of the restrictions that came with that and suddenly everyone was you know having to work from home uh, they'd lost their commute which is a uh, you know co commuting is is what we call a big zeitgeber it's a timekeeper which helps to keep our internal body clock on time it's one of those big routines like sort of going to bed you know getting up eating exposing yourself to light and so that really confused the pattern, um, as well as you know, suddenly people weren't able to go to their 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 gyms. You know, their their, their so their exercise habits changed, their eating habits changed, their life, uh, their light exposure habits changed, um, and you combine all of those factors plus the fact that we then had the clock change as well. And well, our poor poor old body clock didn't know what had happened to it, and uh, of course the internet went uh, crazy with everyone not being able to reportedly not being able to sleep. So I think uh, listening to all of the uh, well, a lot of us are hanging our heads in shame and all the things that we do that, that that do disrupt our sleep. We can all relate to this. But what are the actual consequences of disrupted sleep, Guy? So. When we talk about sleep, I, I like to say that sleep is the single most powerful performance enhancing and health providing behavior known to humankind. And, and we're now pretty confident in this. <laughs> it's a grand claim, I know. It is. Okay. And the, the great thing is, is that is we've got loads of incredible research over the, the, the past two decades from you know, incredible research institutions all around the world, which have enabled us to really get under the bonnet of sleep and realize what what is it do, what's it's doing for us. So, if we, we, the easiest way to do it is is to break it up into sort of our mental, emotional, and physical well being. And if we think about our everyday mental performance. This is kind of the short term benefits of sleep. So if you have a poor night of sleep, what we typically find is that people struggle to be focused and attentive. They struggle with memory recall, motivation, creativity, problem solving, accuracy. All of those things don't do well because we require sleep to preserve our pre prefrontal cortex. And your prefrontal cortex is kind of like it's like your head office. It's the CEO of the brain. It's where all of the higher order executive functions are happening. And so, and unfortunately, it's incredibly vulnerable to sleep deprivation. So when just a single night of poor sleep will, will suddenly mean that we have, you know, sort of, we, we find it much harder to, to be focused and attentive, for example. So that's, that's the sort of the performance side. So it's really important there. But then also, it's so important for our emotional side. And you know, everyone will will have experienced this. You have a poor night of sleep, and we've got that that phrase: getting out of bed on the wrong side. And 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 this is there's again fantastic science that's come out in the last two decades, which understands you know sort of well what's happening when you're sleep deprived. And what we know is you get pushed from your 
prefrontal cortex again, which is helping to regulate our mood, but push us into our amygdala, our more sort of threat detecting part of our brain, which is responsible for managing those uh, sort of uh, that fight and flight type emotions. And what we suddenly do is we start to perceive the world more negatively around us and we perceive ourselves more negatively. So, and if you spend a long time there, well, then that increases your risk of poor mental health as well. So you can see that sleep is really important for our everyday mood, but our long-term mental health. And then in the long term, sleep is also really important for our physical health. So it is helping, well, basically there, there's no biological process that isn't touched in a positive way by good sleep. It helps to wash our brains of neurotoxins that build up, reducing our risk of Alzheimer's and dementia. It helps to regulate our blood pressure, uh, keeping our blood pressure nice and low. It helps to keep our hearts healthy. It helps to manage our appetite hormones, helping us to manage our weight. So, you know, it, it pretty much, you know, has, it, it, there's, it, we often say that it's not what sleep does for us. It's what it doesn't do for us. So it's, it's incredibly special and it's completely free. So we want to make the most of it. And uh, you, you talked about disrupted sleep or, or rather late nights. We have a live case study here where I know there are those listening uh, amongst us that were out last night. Uh, there may have been a reduced amount of sleep, but disrupted further if uh, maybe alcohol was consumed. So let's talk about that. There are lifestyle choices that also affect quality of sleep, aren't there? Absolutely. And, and, and sadly, alcohol is not sleep's friend. Um, alcohol is a sedative. So many people might sort of consume alcohol. Certainly what we see in our clinic is this is where it becomes where they're actually using alcohol to get themselves to sleep because it's, they're using it to switch off that racing mind. They're using it to you know, calm those anxious feelings, et cetera. And I think, you know, certainly many people would, would put their hand up in the air and say, yeah, I've probably done that once or twice, you know, sort of just to sort of help myself feel a little bit more relaxed and, um, and allow alcohol sedative like effect to, to, for us to fall asleep. The problem with alcohol, though, is that it impairs our ability to get into rapid eye movement sleep, which is a, a sleep stage responsible for memory processing and emotional regulation, the bulk of which is occurring sort of in the last two thirds of the night. And so if you've got alcohol still in your system, it's going to fragment your sleep because you're unable to get into that sleep, that sleep stage. And you end up, you're going to end up waking up, you know, sort of more, you know, unrefreshed, um, groggy, you know, sort of uh, uh, and you know, moody, irritable, et cetera. Yes. Yes, I think I can relate to that. Um, and so in, in terms of preparing the body for sleep, and those particular choices that we should make in the hours just before uh, before bedtime. What should we be doing, Guy? Well, I think it's it's really interesting because actually, if you think about uh, um, sort of preparing for sleep, really, it occurs from the moment that you wake up. It's it's quite sad to think about, but um, you know, sort of all of the choices that you make during the day determine how well you sleep at night. And we often say that the, the nighttime is a reflection of your daytime. So, but if, if we focus specifically on the evening time, because that is, that's a really crucial time. And, and, you know, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to understand why that is. We have evolved to live on a planet that rotates between light and dark. Um, our ancestors were very much 
you know, sort of in tune with that rise and fall of the sun. The sun would disappear and we would perhaps go back to our cave. We would, it would be darkening down. We'd be, you know, calming down. And ultimately our activities would be naturally preparing the brain and body for sleep. And that's ultimately what we're wanting to mimic. So that could be, you know, that could be detaching from work successfully. Again, that's been a, one of the big challenges that we've seen over the last couple of years with everyone working from home for the first time, for example. People have you know, found it difficult to navigate that, uh, that world of having your laptop and your working life you know, sort of in the same place where you might sleep, for example, or, or at least in another room. So switching off from work is really important. Connecting to your home life is really important. So actually engaging in something valuable, such as your family, your friends, your hobbies, and that's so much more helpful for you than, say, sitting on the sofa and just scrolling through, you know, sort of social media or, you know, sort of uh, uh, TV, which you're not really sort of engaged with. Um, another super big one is, is light, which I sort of made reference to there. We are incredibly attuned to um, how much light is our environment. And what light does is it gets detected by light sensitive cells in our eyes. And that indicates that it's time to be awake. So when light disappears, as in the evening time, or at least the wavelength changes, that signals to the brain that, uh, that sleeps on its way. So it starts releasing the um, sleep-promoting hormone melatonin. And melatonin has this wonderful job at sort of lowering blood pressure, relaxing muscles, etc. So we're wanting, you know, super simple piece of advice for most people is two hours before going to bed, they just want to begin to darken down, switch off the overheads, turn on the side lamps, you know, sort of switch on the blue light filters on their devices, reduce the amount of brightness on their devices. All of those things will just gently help to, to nudge the brain in that right, in that sort of in the right direction. Yes. And in terms of nutritional intake, I think we all know that caffeine in the evenings is, is not good. At what time should we take our last cup of coffee? Uh, what about eating? Um, when should we be, we shouldn't be eating late, I presume. Tell us a little bit about those sorts of choices as well. Absolutely. So if we look at the science, caffeine has a half-life of six hours, which means it has a quarter-life of 12 hours. So if you have a coffee at midday, a quarter of that caffeine will still be in your system at midnight. So as, oh as a... <laughs> not much fun, Guy. <laughs> Sorry. It's <laughs> okay. As a as a rule of thumb, I would say, you know, try to stop drinking caffeinated products, you know, from midday onwards and swap to decaf or herbal alternatives. If that sounds, you know, sort of, you know, just just too much right now, then, you know, at least give yourself six hours uh, between going to bed and and uh, drinking, you know, consuming some sort of caffeine, etc. Okay. And uh, um, you mentioned light. Sorry, uh, you mentioned light, but let's talk about blue lights particularly and, and how that can affect sleep. Um, there are many of us, I suppose, that might occasionally check emails on their phones or, or, or just be on their devices somehow in the run up uh, to sleep. So um, is that having an impact as well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this is where this light sensitive, these light sensitive cells in our eyes comes into play, because what they're expecting at that time of the day is to, in to be experiencing a darkening down of the light levels. And the reason why it's called blue light is because it's the same web wavelength as blue sky. And so what we know from the research is that if you are on 
um, you know, a device, whether that be a smartphone or a tablet or laptop, etc., um, before or some sort of e-reader before going to bed, well, then that will suppress the release of melatonin, which increases the time it takes you to fall asleep. It reduces the quality of your sleep and cause you to wake up feeling more unrefreshed. So, but it's not just there because a lot of people get quite hooked on blue light. It's, uh, it's not just about blue light. It's about light in general. And so the more you can just darken down in general, the, the, the better you're going to be. Got it. Now, if we um, look at disrupted sleep, we're talking about it as, a, as, as maybe a one-off or an occasionally uncomfortable evening or night. But uh, there are those, of course, uh, that, that suffer from this uh, and suffer with insomnia. Um, and, and I think maybe now's a good time to talk about that. Um, what are the typical causes of insomnia, guys? Is, is it hereditary? Is it, is it lifestyle? Is it workplace related? Well, tell us about that. Yeah, so som- insomnia is what we call a hyperarousal syndrome. Um, it's uh, it, it's it, and the a typical definition for me is where people are worrying about not sleeping. And so you end up with this vicious cycle whereby they begin to experience poor sleep. They begin to worry about not sleeping. The more they worry, the less they sleep and the less they sleep, the more they worry and they sort of go round. And to your question of, you know, well, what, what can fuel insomnia? Well, anything which is going to fuel that level of hyperarousal. So, um, you know, if we take uh, it, perhaps some traits which people might have from a, a hereditary basis. So they might be people who are naturally sort of, um, uh, you know, life's sort of uh, hyper type individuals. Um, they might be life's uh, warriors or, you know, sort of, uh, you know, maybe not even anxiety sufferers yet, but they might be just sort of, you know, they, they might be a, a, a strong warrior. They might be um, uh someone who's naturally an owl or more of an evening person. So tends to be sort of quite active in the evening time. All of these things can increase the level of alertness that a person is experiencing and therefore sort of naturally push sleep further away. So there are lots of different, lots of different sort of potential risk factors, um, you know, sort of poor mental health, you know, sort of stress, for example, um, can be, you know, some, some of the most obvious, which can drive people to poor sleep. But then what typically happens is you'll get this event which might lead to someone experiencing a poor night of sleep. And then they begin to, as I said, sort of worry about it. And often then what can happen is the trigger which initiated their insomnia is long gone. And actually, it's now just that it's become its own entity. Uh, it's now just the worry about not sleeping, which keeps it fueled. Uh, there was a famous uh... Uh, case with uh, the, I was going to say the chief executive, maybe it's former chief executive now of Lloyd's Bank, Antonio Horta Osorio. And um, he suffered to such an extent that I think there was a prolonged period off work as a result, and he was cured in inverted commas. Um, is that, do you see that in the workplace, there's a corporate culture of less sleep that allows more work, you know, and, uh, uh, which I think he has referred to in the past. So, so how do you how do you cure that? Uh, you know, uh, if you have a patient that in this example, how, how do you go about curing that? 
I think it's quite interesting that you mentioned Lloyd's because actually around that time, as a result of um, what Horatio was experiencing and other sort of uh, you know, awareness campaigns that they were running, we actually ran our at work program with a number of different teams with Lloyd's, um, and 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 that was that was a, a great drive by the organisation to recognise the importance of sleep not only for you know, sort of general well-being, but also for, for people's mental health. But what we do on our, our, our corporate side, which is very much focused on that sleep education, about giving people the tools and the knowledge to be able to make those changes during the day and the night to improve their sleep, is actually quite different from what we do on our clinical side. Because on our clinical side, chronic insomnia is a learnt behaviour. So people have become very good at sleeping badly. And that's where we've pioneered the use of something called acceptance and commitment therapy for chronic insomnia, which teaches to change the way people relate to their insomnia. So change the way they think and feel about their insomnia and all of the discomfort that comes with it, the sort of the racing mind, the, you know, sort of the panicky feelings, the anxiety. And the reason why we do that is because traditional approaches seek to try and change it so they try to sort of get rid of the insomnia get rid of the thoughts get rid of and that kind of that makes sense to us who no one wants to have insomnia but anyone who's ever laid in bed awake and tried to get themselves to sleep or tried to get rid of their thoughts or get rid of their anxieties will know that it doesn't work you know the more you try to block your own sort of mind out the basically the stronger those thoughts become so actually by um, what we do with our approach is we seek to change the way people relate to all of that content. So it's effectively increasing people's willingness to, to be awake in the middle of the night. And as a result of doing that, we're removing the obstacles in the way of sleep. And we're also reprogramming the brain, which ultimately has become to associate the nighttime as a place of struggle, of anxiety, of fight and flight, for example. Mm. And so with these programs, well, how long do they take and, and what sort of success percentage can you expect uh, from, from your program? Yeah, so one of the, 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 the interesting things about the development of Sleep School is that we originally started out with a one-to-one -one clinic. Uh, we ran workshops. And um, when we were running pilot studies with those groups, we found that about 80% of people who would attend the clinic or uh, go to a workshop, and that would just be, you know, that might be they would have two or three sessions in the clinic or they attend a one-day workshop. And what we would found is that by uh, by um, six months, 80 percent of those would have returned back to being a normal sleeper, as defined by something called the insomnia severity index, which is an index of sort of how severe someone's insomnia is. Um, but we've recently launched our sleep school app. And the interesting thing about that is, is effectively what we've done is we've digitized that journey. And we've got something called the 30-day the, the, uh, Overcoming Insomnia Program, which basically takes people, everything that was outlined in my book, um, we've updated the content, put it into a 30-day program where people gradually learn a little bit of information about their insomnia and tools and sort of guided audios to help them overcome it. 
um, each day over the 30 days in order to help improve them. And actually, we've just because we launched it in January, and we've just been crunching the data. And amazingly, we found that a 75 percent of the, the, the since since January. So basically in the nine months that we've had it, 75 percent of people who've done that course have actually uh, reported uh, seen you know, significant improvements in their sleep and um, their sleep satisfaction, their morning refreshment levels. But also um, there's they increase the actual total sleep time between one and three hours. So which is a lot significant. Absolutely. So we are we're in the process now of of doing peer reviewed research with our our sort of digital therapeutic arm um, in order to be able to um, uh, sort of add to the, the clinical base that exists for acceptance of commitment therapy for insomnia. Very good. Uh, let's talk about quality of sleep again. And um, and as with most things these days, we can measure most things. And uh, there are apps and trackers. In fact, uh, uh, sleep trackers now. Um, there's an, a ring you can wear that, that, that tracks the quality of your sleep. Um, you may have a view on that, Guy. We were speaking off air earlier. Um, how is it best to... to monitor the quality of your sleep is it more anecdotal or, or do these trackers actually work so I, th I think the first thing for us to do is to is define what is good quality sleep and good quality sleep is where you are getting all of the sleep stages so light deep and rapid eye movement sleep and you are cycling through them so what we typically do is we have cycles that last an hour and a half to two hours and we'll get four to five of them per night depending on how long your sleep is and so a good night's sleep is is cycling through all through all three sleep stages repeatedly throughout the night and and that's important to distinguish because a lot of people will go oh i just want deep sleep you know and and actually you need light sleep you need rapid eye movement sleep they're really important too yeah now with the tracking i think one of the um uh, the challenges with with tracking which i'm sure will you know sort of um be overcome in time but at the moment, the only way to properly um, be able to determine what phase of sleep or stage of sleep someone is in is measuring your brain's electrical activity. And that involves connecting lots of electrodes to an individual's scalp um, and to be able to score them in 30 second epochs, because that's where you're able to measure that electrical activity and go, yes, I can see that that individual um, has a lot of theta activity. So they're in, you know, in light sleep or no, this uh, the proportion of this epoch is made up of deep sleep. So they're in you know, sort of non-REM you know, stage three sleep, for example. Now, with trackers, they are using, traditionally they were using just actigraphy. So they're basing it just on movement. So they're making this suggestion, well, that this person hasn't moved for 90 minutes, therefore that we can make the, assume that they haven't, they've been asleep. Um, now we see more uh, advanced techniques such as using um, breathing rates, um, heart rate variability, for example, um, pulse oximetry maybe so other sort of variables but what they're still not doing is actually using uh sort of the brain's electrical activity and so until that time i am sort of always a little bit skeptical of when a device will go well you spent this much time in uh rem sleep or this much time in deep sleep because it you know how exactly is it doing that so they're not unhelpful they're just not as accurate as as they might portray they are. 
Exactly. So I, when it comes to trackers, I, I say there are pros and there are cons. And what we certainly do know is that they have helped to increase people's awareness of their lifestyle habits and their sleep in a sort of a non-clinical way. So it's enabled people to go, you know, for example, we were just chatting about, I drank too much alcohol last night and my sleep is clearly rubbish. Um, you know, so they make that association. It helps them to make that cognitive leap. And, and, and they can do that for exercise. They can do it for, you know, caffeine consumption, stress levels. And that can help them to hopefully tailor their, their daytime habits to, for the better of their sleep. One of the uh, problems with tracking, though, is that we have seen it's given rise to a new sleep disorder. And this is called orthoinsomnia. And this is the, um, uh, the, the, an increase in sleep anxiety related to uh, a high tendency to track, basically. So when people are tracking, what can happen is they are constantly trying to reach that perfect sleep score. So it's defeating and, the object. <laughs> and it's defeating the object. And especially when you take a group such as chronic insomnia sufferers who we specialize you know in in helping um 80 percent of the, the the individuals who come to us you know, also have anxiety and 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 the interplay between anxiety and chronic insomnia is very high some of them might have ocd so they're obsessive type tendencies as well so there's tracking can often just fuel uh, sleeplessness rather than actually sort of uh, uh, you know allow it to progress and uh, emerge naturally yes 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 and and for those that work on um, through the night uh, on night shifts guy is there what do you recommend there because clearly that is not a natural cycle for them are there health consequences uh, and how do they limit those consequences so absolutely one of the things that we know is 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 that shift work is is not great for our sleep and and we actually work with the sleep school at work program we work with a lot of corporate organizations who have 24 hour shift work operations so we are quite familiar with this and and you know there's lots of research out there showing that um, that shift work is is not good for our sleep but it's also not good for our health so our approach is is, is how can we mitigate that effect? How can we improve the sleep that you've got? Now, shift work is the, is the sort of the, the perfect example of circadian disruption, because suddenly you're trying to uh, work when your biology is telling you, telling you that you need to sleep, and then you're trying to sleep when your, your body is telling you that you need to be, to be awake. So you're, you're at you know, direct odds with your sort of, with, with your biology. And so we will take people through, you know, the, the basics, you know, and since most of our um, you know, biological processes are governed by our internal body clock, this 24 hour uh, rhythm that tells every biological process when to be active and when to be inactive, one of the simplest things is, is actually just bringing regularity into shift work patterns because, okay, so your, your sleep is shot to pieces, your sleep, natural sleep rate cycle, but what about the other factors when you eat, when you move, when you expose yourself to light, you know, sort of, and when you are winding down and when you are sleeping and when you are waking, even if it's in a regular pattern, can you make sure that you're keeping that regular? Because, uh, you know, a lot certainly in, in the UK, 
Um, a lot of organizations will be using a forward rotating you know, shift work pattern where they're going from um, early's to, to days to, to late's to nights, et cetera. So you just want to make sure that whatever shift you're on, your routine is as regular as possible. But then equally, all of the advice that we talk to, you know, sort of our, our um, employees who work nine to five, for example, that is still applicable, but it's just at different times. So making sure that you are winding down after a night shift, you know, you're, you're, you're not coming home and engaging with your home life and watching TV and, you know, sort of being on e emails or eating food, because all of that stuff's just going to, it's going to facilitate that process of waking up. You need to make sure that you're avoiding the light. The sun is the enemy in the morning. Uh, you want to make it sure that you're getting home, um, you know, sort of dark glasses on, hood up, get into bed. You've got a perfect cave waiting for you. Make sure, you know, that you've got a message on the door telling, you know, the, the, the sort of delivery people not to disturb you because you've got to try and, you know, sort of create a space in which um, is going gonna, is gonna to allow sleep to, to emerge during the daytime. So, so there's clearly a way to sleep and how to prepare for sleep. Is there a way to wake up actually as well? Um, you know, we, we can... Of course, we can have the the alarm clock that that just disrupts us quite sometimes in deep deep sleep, and that's probably getting out of the wrong side of bed, isn't it, Guy? But but you know, what is the best way to wake up? Yeah, that's a it's a really great question because the, the, from the research that we did with those twenty five thousand working adults, only one percent said they woke up feeling completely refreshed. So we can you know it's it's perfectly legitimate to say that tiredness is you know is the new normal. And uh, and from all the, the corporate research that we do, where we're, we're constantly asking, did you wake up feeling refreshed? And, you know, sort of so few people say, you know, I, I, I don't remember what that is. And so you're exactly right. If you're wanting to wake up refreshed, what you actually want to do is make sure you're waking up at the end of a cycle. Because if you're waking up at the end of a cycle, that means that you're, you're naturally coming out of sleep and you're going to have less sleep inertia, that grogginess. And the problem with alarm clocks is they have no respect for your sleep architecture. No. Um, although, interestingly, a lot of the trackers are that what they're trying to do is they're trying to estimate when you're going to be in light sleep and trying to pull you out at the right time. So ultimately, you know, you want to be getting up at the the sort of uh, at the end of your cycle, and and a simple way to do that is you if you know biologically that you need eight hours, um, you, you most people's sleep efficiency, which is the amount of time they spend in bed asleep, ideally we want it to be around sort of ninety percent, which means that most people, if if you need eight hours of sleep, they need to be in bed for about sort of eight hours and fifty minutes. So that's what we call your sleep opportunity time. So, and, and if you then work backwards and you go, okay, well, if I'm going to bed at 10, then I need to wake up around seven. And that, if I do, then I'll, should be coming out. And so you can work out that simple, you know, that, that, that's a simple way of, of, of ensuring that you're coming out of the cycle at the end. But then also what you do in the morning is really crucial. And this is where our friend light comes in. Darkening down helps us to fall asleep, brightening up, is absolutely fundamental. So the first thing you want to do is get as much light onto your eyes as possible. And, you know, in the summer months, that's fine. You just open the windows. But in the winter months, that does mean opening, uh, you know, turning on all the lights. And, um, and if you're really struggling, using a light therapy lamp can be a really effective way of helping to signal to your brain that actually the night has finished, inhibits melatonin, 
and helps to start that that cortisol release, which is what we want to to, to, you know, to give us that get up and go. And that's as good as natural daylight in, in that respect? Uh, well, sort of light therapy lamps, um, which, you know, you can pick up on the Internet for sort of, you know, 20 or 30 pounds, for example. They are sun mimicking. So they're, they're firing sort of 10, 20,000 lux uh, you know, worth of light into your eyes. And, you know, for example, you might uh, use it for 10 or 20 minutes while sat eating your breakfast, putting on your makeup or whatever it may be. Also, have a really good routine. Get up at the same time every day. You know, have a, a really great shower, do some exercise, um, you know, sort of eat something. All of those things act as those biological markers for, for, for your internal body clock and will set you on your way towards a better day. Okay. Uh, one topic I'd like you to cover, please, is uh, for the parents listening uh, and for young people listening. The um, young people, particularly teenagers, uh, it seems do need more sleep than the typical adult. And um, what is going on there? And in fact, I think there have been countless studies and schools at, at one point or government at one point was even considering a later school start time. There might be countries that have actually implemented this, but I haven't followed that since. Um, what are your views on that? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. When children go through puberty, they have a, uh, a, a what we would call a delay in their sleep phase. So suddenly the release of their melatonin gets delayed by one to two hours, which suddenly means that they want to go to bed later than their parents. And you know, for most of their parents, as they're getting a bit older, their sleep habits tend to be advancing. So they're wanting to go to bed early. And so the, suddenly this gap is being is, is created. So this is a natural biological phenomenon. Um, it's not uh, uh, it's not just teenagers sort of, you know, being teenagers, etc. Although one, you know, the, the, the issue that the sort of comeback that I always hear is that, oh, it's because they're on their devices. And it, the problem is, is being on their devices, i.e. being exposed to the, the light as well as the cognitive emotional stimulation will amplify this sort of evening sort of uh, characteristic. So it doesn't help. But it's not the actual, you know, it, there is, you know, strong um, uh, biology at play here. Now, the other um, point which you highlighted is that teenagers do need a little bit more sleep um, than us you know, adults um, still. So they, they might need you know, up to nine hours of sleep. And so they're meant to get this nine hours in this slightly delayed sleep-wake cycle. But the problem is, is they have to get up to uh, go to school. And which means that not only do they experience this sort of uh, confusion in the circadian timing, but then they also get their sleep cut short. So they're experiencing what we call social jet lag, which is where you get all of the, 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 the joys of jet lag, except you haven't traveled anywhere. So, you, you know, that basically they feel grumpy, irritable, nauseous, lack of focus, emotional, etc., and can't sleep simply because they're of this, this confusion and sleep deprivation. So as you rightly highlighted, some uh, governments based on incredible research whereby they've shown, well, hang on, if you allow teenagers to actually start school a bit later, then they, they not only perform better academically, are sort of their mental health is better and, and overall they're just, you know, everything is better for them. Um, some, you know, uh, countries have seek to try and, you know, um, uh, instigate a programme like that, but it's often, it's challenging. And, you know, sort of it's often come up against, well, 
you know, sort of work times and, uh, you know, bus timetables, etc. But as we move more into this kind of flexible post-COVID world, um, I do believe that we might see some more sort of improvements in that area. Yes. Well, this has been a fascinating discussion, Guy. And um, maybe to bring this great talk to a close, what are the basics you should leave us with as, as the, your best advice for, for a restful, energizing night's sleep? Okay. So the, the first one, which is very close to Sleep School's heart, is, is don't struggle. Sleep is a natural biological process that you can't control. If you, if, 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 you know, and struggling against it just makes you more awake. So ultimately, remember that lying in bed, resting, awake, open to experiencing whatever's showing up still gets you a lot of benefit. So we, we don't want to struggle. Rest in bed. And then if your mind is, is racing all over the place, do a little bit of sort of um, noticing practice. So you might use some sort of uh, anchor to the present moment, such as the movement of your bed or the touch of your, your bed on your body. And you're just using that as, as somewhere to focus your mind's attention. And if your mind wanders off onto everything about that you've got the next day, or maybe even to, you know, if I don't fall asleep soon, I won't be able to, uh, you know, cope or perform. Well, that's where you just, you, you use that as an anchor to the, to the present moment. You come back to the breath, you come back to that sense of contact between you and the body. And that can be a great way of helping to cultivate this, this, this quiet wakefulness, which we know then helps to change the way people relate to their sleep and, and get them to sleep better. Thank you, Guy. That's a lot of food for thought. It's, it's been a real education. And uh, for anyone listening that would like more information, uh, we'd be delighted to connect you directly with Guy. Uh, please email lanzerhoff at theartsclub.co.uk. Uh, Guy, once again, thank you so much for this. And, uh, well, we hope to see you again, uh, speak to you again, and um, sleep well. Thank you very much. Cheers, Guy. All the best. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.